we've got a lot of ground to cover today, and so we're going to just dive in and go for it. Um, really, really uh, good stuff today in John chapter 12. And, uh, and so I'm, I'm going to welcome you if you're a visitor, uh, join us for the first time. We're in the Gospel of John. We're going through the Gospel of John together, verse by verse, and this journey is going to take us all the way up until like our Advent series this year. So we've got a lot of ground yet to cover before we finish the Gospel of John. We made it to chapter 12. And, uh, and so just a little context, last week uh, we looked at, um, in the beginning of this final week in the life of Christ, how there were a group of Greek worshipers, so non-Jewish worshipers who came to Jerusalem to worship with the Jews, which is kind of strange, a little bit risky, but more than that, they wanted to speak to Jesus. And so not only were they kind of stepping away from their uh, Greek Roman culture and, and philosophies and, and beliefs to pursue the God of the Jews, but as they approach Jesus in private, they are running risk of being rejected by the Jews and even persecuted. And so in that conversation, Jesus, again, this is probably Monday or Tuesday early in the week before he goes to the cross, he points first of all to his own death and resurrection. He compares himself to like a, a seed of wheat that needs to die and fall and be buried into the soil in order to produce fruit, um, talking about his own death and resurrection. But then he turns to them and says, let me, let me share this with you. If any of you loves his own life, you're actually in the end, you're gonna lose it. But if you hate your life or love your life less, in the end, you will gain eternal life. So it's out of that conversation now uh, that we step back into John 12 in verse 35. And today's topic is gonna, is gonna be a discussion on what it means to believe in Jesus. This is such an important under, a part of our faith, important that everybody here who says, I am a Christian, it's so important for you to understand what that means, that you believe in Jesus. If you're, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, it's just as important for you to understand that as well. What do we mean when we say that we are saved by believing in Jesus? And so we look at the general theme of the Gospel of John. Verses come to mind like John 3, 16. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him, that's a sign from God, by the way, that he's happy when we read this. Yeah, pay attention. Uh, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. We go to the end of the Gospel of John in chapter 20, where he lays out kind of a thesis summary of all that he's written. He says these words, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, you may have life in his name. If you go through the Gospel of John, verse by verse, over 84 occurrences of this idea of believing and believing in Jesus is going to be a central theme of the verses that we're looking at here today. Starting in verse 35, we read these words. So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. 
When Jesus said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. And so there's this topic of light that's coming up over and over again in the Gospel of John. It's in chapter 1. He refers to, to Jesus as being the source of the light and the life of men. Uh, later on, uh, he, he quotes Jesus saying, I am the light of the world. And we've talked extensively in this series about what that means, that Jesus comes into the world to be a light, and then also what it means for us to be a light in the world. So today we're not going to take a lot of time to discuss this, but a couple of things to note here. So there's two trajectories for your life. One is walking in the light. One is walking in darkness. The idea of walking is is thinking about what you pursue, the journey you're on. What are you pursuing in life? What are you ambitious for? What are you chasing after? One pursuit is a pursuit of what is the light, and one is a pursuit of the darkness. And a note here is to understand this, that the idea of walking in darkness, it's not something to be flirted with. Matter of fact, it's expressed here that even the darkness can overtake you. So the darkness is not just something we flirt with every once in a while. We walk in the light for a couple days, and we're in the darkness for a couple days, and we're in the light a couple days. Jesus is giving a warning here that we would walk in the light while we have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. Right here in verse 36, though, we read, while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. And so there's this really powerful invitation and promise in this verse, isn't there? You wanna become a child of the light, a son of the light. What's meant here is a child of God, a son of God, a daughter of God. But here's how you get there. You need to believe in the light and then you will become a son of the light. So there's this intimate connection between belief once again in the Gospel of John, and what we become. And here it's expressed, believe in the light that you may become sons of the light. Let's talk briefly about what it means to walk in the light. If there are any Christians in the room from the uh, early 90s, it's more than just a DC talk song, right? So we go to the book of Ephesians chapter five. If you're laughing, I'm assuming that that wasn't a courtesy laugh, like you really remember DC talk. I want to be in the light. This is Toby Mac before Toby Mac was Toby Mac, right? Okay. All right. So Ephesians 5, more important than DC Talk. The Apostle Paul is writing about what it means to walk in light. And I want you to take note of this description. If you're a person who says, yeah, I walk in the light. I live my life in the light. I pursue the light. Listen to this description. Ephesians 5, verse 8. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. Verse nine, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. So two things here. One, there is the idea of fruitfulness and unfruitfulness. If I'm walking in the light, there's gonna be fruitfulness. That's the idea of you can see some things coming out of my life. Okay, so if I have inward faith, inward belief, what comes out of my life is called fruit, evidence of. So it's an outward evidence of something going on on the inside. Walking in the light, clearly Paul said, there's gonna be a fruit that comes out of your life. We'll talk about that fruit in a minute. But however you walk in darkness, all that's gonna be seen is unfruitfulness. So what is that fruit then that Paul says will be coming out of the lives of those who walk in the light? Here it is. What is good, what is right, what is true, and what is pleasing to the Lord. So it's not enough just to say, I'm a Christian, I have a t-shirt. 
I walked an aisle when I was eight years old and said this magical prayer with the preacher in front of everybody. They voted on me. I became a Christian. It's not enough to say I did all these right things. The preacher said, bow your head and close your eyes and raise your hand. I did all that stuff, so now I'm a Christian. Paul is saying, listen, if you're in Christ and you're walking in the light, there's a fruit that's gonna come out of your life. It's gonna look like this, the pursuit of what is good, the pursuit of what is right, the pursuit of what is true, and the pursuit of what is pleasing to the Lord, not what is pleasing to you. That's what it looks like to to witness, to, to see the evidence of a life that is walking in the light. So now we come back to this invitation, believe in the light that you might become sons of the light. And that's really what we're after here today. So what does it mean to believe in Jesus? I think as I survey the church that I understand of today, I see a lot of different expressions of this belief. Some are as lighthearted and watered down um, as, as this. The idea is just muster up some belief and kind of clench your fists and go with it. Almost the same level of belief that you use when you buy a lotto ticket. Right? Surely if you buy a lotto ticket, you believe there's at least a chance you can win. There's a certain level of faith in that, right? Some of you are gonna go to work tomorrow, most of you, and you're not gonna get paid until like Friday or until like the 15th or 30th. So there's some faith involved in just going to work, right? So we, we live at all different aspects and levels of faith. And there are some expressions of the gospel that say, yeah, in the same way, just, just kind of you know, believe, just clench your fists and just, just kind of just believe that it's true. Say to yourself that it's true and that's all that it takes to be saved. And there'll be others who'd say, well, that's a little watered down in light. No, 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 no. We've got to look at your church attendance. I'm gonna to talk to the elders. Have you been at church lately? How about your giving? Let's look at your giving. What about community? Are you in a community group? Have you volunteered to lead a community group yet? Have you gone through redemption groups yet? Right, and on and on and on. There's these boxes that we check, the varsity Christian boxes, and we say, whoa, 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 it's not enough just to say I'm a Christian. You gotta do all this stuff if you really wanna be a Christian. Now, I wanna look together with you at a couple of places in the New Testament that describe the relationship between faith and being saved, that we might better understand what Jesus means when he says, believe in the light. Does he mean something more complex and complicated than simply just belief? Does he mean that there needs to be some outward actions that that follow that belief? Or is he simply saying, just believe it in your mind, think it's true and that's enough. The apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter two, a fairly commonplace, well-known place in the Bible that describes the mechanism or the method by which we are saved. Paul says it this way in Ephesians 2, uh, chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. He says, for by grace you have been saved. Surely there's nobody in the room that would argue with that. Need lots of grace. I'm going to be saved. So it is by grace you have been saved through faith. There's our belief. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. So even our faith comes to us as an expression of God's mercy. It is a gift of God. He goes on to say what? Not a result of works. Not a result of Sunday school attendance. Not a result of how much money you give. But what? It is the gift of God so that no one may boast. So it seems that Paul is gonna go to great lengths to protect this idea that we are saved by faith. Don't add any works to it. Don't add anything to it that gives you room to boast or brag. 
But then we go to the book of James. And James, a dear brother, in James chapter 2 describes the relationship between faith and works. He says it this way. What good is it, brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? That's what we're after today. We want to know the answer to that question. And he gives us an example. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? This is equivalent of saying, hey, good luck with that. I hope that goes well for you. Then he says what? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So we look at what Paul says about faith, and he goes to great lengths to, to make sure we don't add any works to our faith. And James over here saying, hey, that's all fine and well, but listen, if your faith doesn't have some works coming out of it, then that faith is dead. And James would go on to say, you believe? Fantastic. Did you know the demons believe? And they even shudder at the name of Christ, but, but that's not saving faith. So I want to give you a couple of really, really common historical sermon illustrations to help. And so there for decades, probably hundreds of years, there are a couple of different preaching illustrations that have been used that independently, I'm, I, I'm not a big fan of either one of them for a couple of reasons. And I, I think they serve us fine, but I'll, I'll give them to you. So one is used oftentimes in sharing the gospel and it's done in like a drawing form. So maybe you've seen this where somebody sits down, they draw two cliffs. Maybe you've seen the gospel presented this way. And the idea is there are two cliffs with a chasm in between. And you as a non-Christian are standing on one cliff. And there's a great chasm between you and the other cliff, and the other cliff is where God is, and that's where, that's where heaven is, and that's where eternal life is. And the chasm that's separating you from God and from eternal life is sin. So far, so good. The bottom of the chasm is hell. You don't want to go down there. It's bad. So you need a way to get across this chasm. Now, your good works are like you trying to cross this 10-mile chasm uh, by, with, uh, by building a diving board. Right, and so you build a diving board, you, it gets you four feet closer, and you can kind of bounce, and you can get out there another five or 10 feet, but it's gonna fall immeasurably short of you crossing the chasm by your good works. So far, so good. So the idea in this illustration is that then Christ comes to us, and in the illustration, the cross becomes the bridge. That's what bridges the gap of the chasm, our sin separating us from God, so far, so good. That's the only way to get into heaven. You cannot do it in your own strength. The problem with that illustration at times, I think, is that we take that illustration and we go, oh, fantastic. Christ has done the work, but it's still my job to do the work of crossing the chasm. And so we'll tend to lean back into attendance and good works and all these sorts of things to say, hmm, look at me. Look at what I'm doing. Look at my security because of all the great things I'm doing. And so if we're not careful, that illustration can, can lead us to a false understanding of what it means to be saved by faith. There's another illustration that's a little bit older than that one. At least I think it is. Um, and it involves Niagara Falls, a tightrope, and a wheelbarrow. Have you heard this one? Okay, I, I think this one is helpful too, but it has its own issues. So here's the illustration. There's a man who claimed that he could cross Niagara Falls on a tightrope. And not only that, he claimed that he could actually push a wheelbarrow across it and back. And so one day he gathers a great crowd on one edge of Niagara Falls. The tightrope is extended. He has this wheelbarrow and he has a crowd of people. And he says to the crowd, You've gathered here today to watch me do something impossible. I'm going to cross Niagara Falls on a tightrope, and I'm going to push this wheelbarrow all the way across. 
Who here today thinks I can push this wheelbarrow across Niagara Falls? And a few people in the crowd were like, yeah, I want to see somebody die today. Let's do this. So he grabs the wheelbarrow and he puts it up on the tightrope. He steps up, finds his balance, and he begins his journey step by step across Niagara Falls. Gets about halfway. It's windy. It's shaking. He gathers himself. The crowd's like, oh. And he continues his journey. He makes it to the other side. When he makes it to the other side, the crowd, when he left, erupts with applause. Wow, that was amazing. So he says to the crowd, how many of you think I can do it again? And now a few more people are like, yeah, that was pretty cool. Let's do it again. And so he puts the Wilbur up on the tightrope. He steps on, he gets his footing, and he makes his journey back across ever so slowly and hesitantly and cautiously. Whoa, he almost falls. And then he makes it back, and the crowd just erupts. Whoa, it's fantastic. So then he turns to the crowd and says, wow, did you like that? Yeah. How many of you believe I can do it again? And now everybody's in. Yeah, go for it. And here's where the implications of theology comes in. Okay, who wants to get in the wheelbarrow? Silence. See, there's a difference in believing that he can and trusting that he can. Now, the problem with this illustration is that Jesus is never on a tightrope about to fall. It's always certain that he's going to cross the chasm for us. The cross is never um, in jeopardy. His sacrifice for us is never left to chance. It's all unfolding according to God's providential plan. So he's never the tightrope walker hoping to make it. He speaks with certainty about going to the grave and coming back. Okay, but the, uh, but the part about faith, I think, works in understanding that there's more than just saying, I believe that Jesus died on the cross and resurrected. I believe that's true. It's a different thing to take a step of faith and say, and I trust him with my life. I believe in him. And so I think the answer to the questions that we're asking today really are embedded in understanding this word that we translate into faith or into belief. It's the Greek word pistis, or pistis, however you want to pronounce it. And on, on one hand, it translates well into belief or faith. We are saved by faith. Those who believe become sons of God. But there are more words that explain what is meant by this one Greek word. Here are some more ways that that word can be translated. I want you to listen, and I want you to think about what it means to believe in Jesus. It also translates into the word trust. It also translates into the word confidence. It also can translate into the word guarantee. Now we're getting stronger, aren't we? You buy your lotto tickets, there's no guarantee. You go to work tomorrow, there's no guarantee you're gonna get paid. But even more than that, it could also translate into the word loyalty. The word loyalty invokes the idea of obedience, right? So it's just not the idea that I'm on one side of the cliff going, man, I believe Jesus can do this thing. I've seen him do it, I've watched it, I believe he can do it. It's a whole other thing to say, just sign me up. Put me in the wheelbarrow, I'll go. I'll let go of everything that, that I find security in, and I'm putting my trust in him 100%, guaranteed. He has my confidence and he has my loyalty. See, what I think James and Paul and I think Jesus is saying here is that when we have the kind of faith that's described that way, there will be a fruit that comes out of our life, beginning with confession, just a willingness to confess that Jesus is our Lord and Savior, and from there, amazing, beautiful fruit will come out of our lives in the form of what is good, what is right, what is true, and what is pleasing to the Lord. So, 
at the end of the day, I can't just stand on one side of the chasm and go, I'm a Christian, I believe in Christ. And now I'm going to give up on my marriage. Well, why? Well, because my spouse, she gave up a long time ago and to be honest with you, she hasn't put anything into this thing in like a couple years and I'm just tired of being the only one. See, all those expressions, they're easy to empathize with, aren't they? Oh man, I've been there. I know somebody like that. That's hard. But on the other hand, the question is, where's my loyalty to? Is my loyalty to my spouse and what she can give to me or is my loyalty to Christ? Because Christ commands me to love her whether she loves me or not. What do I do when I, my boss invites me into his office or her office and says, here, thank you for what you've done for the company. I'm letting you go. Am I gonna respond in fear and anger and doubt and question, why me, why God? Or am I gonna continue to stay in the wheelbarrow and say, God's got this. I trust him 100%. Like this was not hidden from his eyes. He knew this was about to happen. God, show me the lesson you want me to take from this and then show me where we're going next. Because I've trusted my life into your hands. And the same way you take care of a sparrow, I believe you're gonna take care of me. How about the diagnosis? How about the in-between diagnosis? That's hard. Doctor says we found something, but we don't know what it is. We're gonna run these tests and there's gonna be a period of time. Days, maybe even weeks before you get the results. That in-between is hard. I've been there with my wife with, with cancer and doctor's saying, yes, we know it's cancer. We just don't know how bad. So we're gonna run these tests and oh, by the way, you're gonna need to wait close to 10, seven to 10 days. Seven, you can't even give me how many days to wait? Now it's gonna take seven or 10 days. Who's on the other end of that processing those results? Can you make it seven? Phone call comes in. Yeah, it's worse than we thought. We're gonna need to do a further biopsy, get some lymph nodes and like, what do we, how do we respond to these kinds of things? You see, that's, that's the life in the wheelbarrow saying my life is in his hands, 100%. That's more than just wishful thinking. That's more than just mustering up, I believe. That's saying, no, I not only believe that Christ has died and resurrected from the grave, but I'm putting my life in his hands. And so this is what Jesus is calling us to when he says, those who believe in the light will become sons of light. Now what's gonna happen from here is uh, Jesus is going to uh, refer, actually John is gonna refer to why all this is happening now in the nation of Israel. This is helpful. In verse 37, he says, though he, that's Christ, had done many signs before them, they still not, did not believe in him. So what John is saying, if we use our illustration, there's a huge crowd over here, the nation of Israel on one side of the cliff, one side of Niagara Falls. And although Christ has gone back and forth and back and forth, he's walked on water, he's healed. He's resurrected Lazarus from the dead. He's fed the 5,000. He's gone back and forth and more than proved he is capable that the nation of Israel as a whole is still sitting over here going, that's not enough. We don't believe. You think about it. Crowds of people at times are following Jesus. After the feeding of the 5,000, they cross over the sea only to find what? The crowd had met them in the next village. Why? They wanted to see another miracle. Palm Sunday, Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. We just looked at this two weeks ago. What's happening? The crowds are greeting him. The nation of Israel is chanting and, and praising, Hosanna, Hosanna in the high. Finally, our Messiah is here. Take note, this same crowd five days later, six days later, will also be chanting at the cross something different. Crucify him. 
And so what John is noting here is the whole nation as a whole, even though he had done more than enough, they still did not believe in him. And then we read this, so that, verse 38, the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. That's a really important phrase, and that shows up a lot in the New Testament. Matthew is a gospel writer. He includes that a lot. Anytime you see that, it's somebody saying to you, listen, this was predicted by God. God wrote about this in the Old Testament, and now it's being fulfilled. So this is what John is saying, what's happening through Christ here, in, through the rejection, through the disbelief, is that this was prophesied about. And so now he's going to quote Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 6, starting with Isaiah 53. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Who's going to believe this message? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, this is Isaiah 6, for he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. So to get some context here, um, Isaiah in Isaiah 6 has this, this dramatic, personal glory experience with God. He has this throne room experience. And in this throne room experience, he, he, he sees uh, the throne of God, he sees the stairs, he sees the, the robe and just the train of the robe of God is filling the room with glory. And there's these angelic beings kind of hovering around the throne. And Isaiah says that in that moment, he was undone or ruined, brought to nothing. And then God does something very merciful, sends one of the angelic beings over to an altar with coals in it and, the, and takes a, a, a a pair of tongs and the coal out of the altar and touches it to Isaiah's lips as an expression of God's forgiveness and mercy and cleansing power. Because Isaiah's, his confession is, whoa, whoa, I am unclean and I live among a people who are unclean, who have unclean lips. And God says, let me show you not only what my glory looks like, let me show you what my mercy looks like. Okay, right after this experience, okay, um, God comes to Isaiah and says, all right, I've got a mission. Who's gonna go for me? And this is where Isaiah, that famous response, here I am, Lord, send me, sign me up. From what I saw, what I have experienced, what I know about who you are, I'll go anywhere you send me. Well, here's what's interesting, is right off the bat, God says, well, well let me tell you how the mission's gonna go. You're gonna go and you're gonna proclaim my message and people aren't gonna receive it. People are gonna reject it. Their eyes are gonna be blind, their ears are gonna be deaf, their hearts are gonna be hardened. And that's where the second quote comes from. He says, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Now, two questions or maybe even problems come up. Why would God send Isaiah on an errand or on a mission that seems like it's not going to work? The second part of this, and probably the question some of you are thinking right now is, how can God be a good God and a loving God and yet be a God who hardens hearts so that people cannot believe? Now, the presumption about that question is that somehow human beings are just these innocent, fluffy little creatures walking around the earth and God has just decided to be mean to a few of them. Mm, I don't like the way you looked at me. I'm gonna harden your heart. You know what? Mm, I don't really like you. Or maybe he's just arbitrarily picking. One, two, one, two, one, two. All the twos get over here, I'm gonna harden your hearts. All the ones get over here, I'm gonna open your eyes to see. 
And all this presumes that man is walking on the earth in innocence, just minding his own business, and the big mean God shows up and hardens hearts. That's not at all the way the scriptures describe who God is in the scenario to us. God is looking forward, and he's saying to Isaiah, listen, you're gonna go and you're gonna, you're gonna call to the people to repentance. They aren't gonna respond. I can see the hardness of their hearts. Romans 1 says, yeah, and there's a point in your sinful rebellion where I'm gonna give you over to your sin. And so when we understand that, we see that God isn't hardening the hearts of innocent victims, right? He's looking at rebellious, wicked children who've rebelled against their father, who've gone their own way, and at some point, God gives them over. And it's so important to understand that before that happens are these great extents of patience. Like, that's so important to understand. Like, God isn't a mean, arbitrary God. He's a very patient, loving father. Think about like Noah. I was thinking about this. Actually, we were discussing it in a men's Bible study this week. Just as an example of God's patience, we typically look at the story of Noah and we go, man, God's mean. Don't tick him off. He'll flood the earth and kill everybody. And we fail to realize the context of the flood. God describes the hearts of men before the flood happens. And what does he say? The thoughts of men are always evil all the time. And so God was actually being patient with the wickedness of men. And understand, it took decades for the ark to be built. Meanwhile, more opportunities for people to turn from their wickedness, from the rebellion, because God was being patient. By the time we get to the flood, God is removing his patience and he's flooding the earth. There would be some who would say, wow, it looks like God then is one of those parents who loses his cool, loses his patience. I don't prefer to think of God that way. Parents, you know what I'm talking about, right? You like, you're patient, you're patient, you're patient, you're, then, then his patience is gone. The problem with that is once I've lost my patience, I quickly gravitate into sinful behavior, okay? So I don't think that God ever gets to the point where all of his patience is done and he just loses his cool on us. I think God in his wisdom knows when to be patient and when to withdraw his patience. And yes, God is patient with us. He is long-suffering with us. His love endures forever. He's kind to us. But at some point in his wisdom, in his providence, with different people at different times, he chooses justly to remove that patience. This is what Romans 1 is getting at. This is what Isaiah is happening here for Isaiah. I think this is happening for the nation of Israel at the time of Christ. God is not just arbitrarily going, you know what, it'll be fun. Angels, come here, watch this. I'm gonna harden their hearts. Then I'm gonna send my son. They're not gonna believe in him. Then I'm gonna hold them responsible for that. No, God is looking at a rebellious nation with hardened hearts. He's saying, we're going anyway. I'm sending my son anyway. He is going to be rejected. And one of the reasons why I believe that that's true is we look at the other quote here in John 12 is from Isaiah 53. I think it's so important to understand God in his providence predicted how the Messiah would be received by man, specifically the nation of Israel. In Isaiah 53, verse one, again, this is the quote from John 12. Who has believed what he heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, this is the Messiah, grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and what? Rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men would hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. These are the people now with hardened hearts, with eyes that can't see, with ears who can't hear. And God is describing the nation of Israel this way. 
the very people on earth who should have been ecstatic, who should have been receiving the Messiah with open arms are the very people who are missing him altogether. And so now here we are in the final hours of Christ's time here on earth before the cross. And even though there was was some big moments where a lot of Jews were following him and getting excited about him, now here in his final hour, for the most part, the nation has rejected him. And what John is pointing out to us is that all this was prophesied by Isaiah. Now remember what it was that God did for Isaiah before he commissioned him. He revealed his glory and his mercy to him, right? So now we're gonna look at a group of people who are almost there. So in verse 41, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory, meaning God's glory, and spoke of him. So Isaiah saw the glory of God. Whatever he saw, whatever he experienced was worth more than the rest of his life. He said, I'm living the rest of my life for you, God. Nevertheless, verse 42, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So another question arises. We got a group of people here. On one hand, they're believing in him, but on the other hand, they're unwilling to confess it. And the reason is because they're fearful. They're fearful that the, that the Pharisees will kick them out of the synagogue. And ultimately, at the bottom of it all, they love the glory of man more than the glory of God. What was it that drove Isaiah to preach even though they weren't gonna hear? The glory of God. And now here in this situation, we're left with a really, really heavy question. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? Not the wishful thinking kind of belief, but the kind of believing that leads to salvation. The kind of believing that that causes you to become a child of the light. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? I wanna think about the issues here. We got a group of people here who are almost there and what's keeping them from there? It's the love of the glory of man. What, what do we mean by the glory of man? We mean the applause of man. I don't know if you've ever like played on a sports team or like been a part of like a theatrical performance or any kind of situation where you've received applause. It's intoxicating. But it comes to us in a lot of other versions. It's the attaboy from a boss It's a coach who pulls you aside and says, hey, you're doing a great job. Thanks for being a leader for this team. It may come from a teacher. Hey, you're really one of my smartest students. It may have come from your parents, grandparents, friends. But we love that, don't we? The applause of man, the acceptance of men. Anybody who's ever been in junior high knows this, (laughs) right? If you're in junior high today, you're here, we just need to stop and pray for you, whoever you are. Like, that's a hard season of life. It is. All of us, I mean, except for like the two or three cool kids, the rest of us, we were craving acceptance. We wanted to to be normal, to be accepted, to be loved, to feel like we fit in. And we know what it's like to crave that. So now we got a group of adults here who are still craving that. They want the acceptance of man. They want the applause of man. They want the glory of man. And that's keeping them from taking that next step from belief to confessing. Because they love that more than they do the glory of God. I think probably the best place for us to turn now is to Romans chapter 10 to look at a couple of verses together that pull, that pull all this together for us. Which is it? Saved by faith or saved by faith producing works? What is it? Is it Paul? Is it James? Is it Christ? 
What does it mean to believe with the kind of faith that leads to salvation? Romans chapter 10 says it clearly, starting in verse nine. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, what's the promise? You'll be saved. Confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Is that enough? It's not. It's not. It's what we call nominal Christianity. Wanting people to think that you are religious, wanting people to think that you are saved, wanting people to think that you are a Christian. Let's face it, in the Bible Belt, that can come with perks. That's, that's, if, if it's just confessing out loud, but you don't believe it, it's nominal Christianity. But more than that, we have to believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead. And evidently, that alone is not enough. Think about the hard invitation of Jesus. If you will confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father in heaven. But if you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father. There is no room for Christians hanging out in the shadows. That's the Christians in John 12. Quote, Christians. Those who are like, man, I'm gonna believe, but I'm not willing to cross over that threshold and confess it, because it may cost me. It may cost me the glory of man. It may cost me the acceptance and the applause of man. And I'm not willing to give that up for the glory of God. Listen, Isaiah said some pretty risky things to his fellow Jews at the risk of being rejected and even persecuted. We asked the question, why would he do that? Here it is, it's simple. Because he saw the glory of God. He was humbled, he was ruined, he was undone, he was broken. And what he experienced was worth more than anything else he had in life. That was his get in the wheelbarrow moment. <laughs> there wasn't an option to say, I'm not here, don't send me. You see that? Here I am, send me, I am here. It's gonna be risky. It doesn't matter, I'm going anyway. It's gonna be dangerous, I say, it doesn't matter. Why? Because what I've seen in this small moment of my life is worth trading everything else for. If this is what heaven's gonna be like, I'll take heaven. You can have the rest of my life, Lord. Okay, well, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna go on a mission where you're gonna get rejected. Okay, where are we going? I'm gonna give you a message to preach. People aren't gonna receive it. Okay, write it down so I don't forget it. I'm exaggerating the point, but why did Isaiah go? Because he saw the glory of God, God, and and what he saw in the glory of God was worth more than the glory of man. And here in John 12, we have the opposite of that. So now I wanna ask you, where are you? I mean that with all sincerity, where are you? We are saved by grace through faith. It's not your works, it saves you. No room to boast. But it's not enough to just sit over on one side of the, of the cliff and go, I just believe. I also believe I'm gonna win the lotto tonight. I just wishful thinking. If you believe in your heart that God raised Christ from the dead and you confess with your mouth, you, are, you will be saved. Reiterated once again, again in Romans 10. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is the Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Here's the next promise for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So the last thing I would wanna do is to, to 
The last thing I want to see is for somebody here today who walked in thinking they were a Christian because you walked an aisle one day and you said this magical prayer or you've got a, room, you know, a closet full of Christian t-shirts and like all the Christian stuff is going on on the outside, but there's nothing going on, on the inside. The last thing I would want to see is for you to walk out of here today without taking a step of faith to believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And second to that, the last thing I would want to see today is somebody who walked in today, and if I'd asked you on walking in, hey, do you believe in Jesus? You'd say yes quickly, but now you're beginning to realize that there's a competing um, alliance in your heart between the glory of God and the glory of man. And for you to leave out of here today not willing to confess that, not just in here, but to confess it out there. So here's a couple of questions I just want to ask you to think about because I love you, because I, I want you to be saved. First of all, think about the people who know you best in life. If I walked up to somebody who I don't know who knows you well and said, hey, tell me about him, tell me about her, would somewhere in their description be a description of you as a follower of Jesus? Just, just think about that. I want you to think about this as well. Think about your own faith, your belief in Jesus. Would the words trust, confidence, and loyalty Describe your faith in Jesus. Last and certainly not least, does the glory of man trump over the glory of God in your heart? Which is more important to you? Are you willing to give up the glory of man in order to behold the glory of God? Evidently, that's an important part of becoming a Christian and believing in the light. So I'm gonna pray for us today. And if you're here today and you have not taken a step of faith to trust in Christ as your savior, to confess that, listen, yes, you can pray in your own heart, in your own mind, privately. But I'm gonna strongly encourage you to confess that out loud. Find somebody in your life who you think will be excited about that decision and share it with them. Proclaim it to them, a grandparent, a friend, an elder, a pastor. Or maybe you're here today and you're realizing, you know what? I've kind of been in and out of the shadows here. I'm kind of like this group of, of believers who I want to be known as a believer in my church, church world, but out in the real world, I, I shrink back. Maybe that's where you are. Maybe today would be the day to cut ties and allegiance with acceptance in the world and say, you know what? I'm, I want the glory of God. I want what Isaiah had. I want to be in the wheelbarrow. I want to be trusting Christ at that level where no matter what happens in my life, right, the destiny is never in jeopardy. I know where I'm going and I know whom I'm going with. And we're gonna cross some crazy times and some tumultuous times, some great times, it doesn't matter. My hands are in, my, my life is in the hands of my savior. And so maybe that's where you are and, and you need to make that transition today from believing to believing and confessing. So I'm just gonna pray for us today that God would work and however he is speaking to you and then we'll respond. Father, thank you for your word. Um, we asked you earlier to speak words that were true. God, that is not a small thing. Father, very often words that are true call us out of comfort and complacency. They awaken us to things, God. And so, God, as you've spoken to each of us today, words that are true, Father, you're awakening things in us. Now, Father, may we respond in faith, true faith, trusting faith, confident faith fruit-producing faith. We acknowledge, Father, there is no way for us to get into heaven but through Christ. That Christ has literally bridged the gap 
between where we are and Father, eternal life. And so Father, today we wanna, we wanna walk out of here, our lives completely in the hands of our Savior. Whatever may come tomorrow, Father, completely in your hands. We wanna live with that kind of faith. We wanna be children of the light. So Father, would you do that work in us today, we pray in the powerful name of Jesus.